On a balmy June night in 2017, 17-year-old Ricky Gators and two acquaintances were spotted and stopped by Portland, Oregon police officers who were searching for suspects in the vicinity of a shooting incident near Southeast Powell and 132nd Avenue. I heard gunshots. I'm getting away. Like, you know, I'm not trying to get caught in no gunshots. I'm not trying to get shot at or whatever. And then, like, next thing I know, like, I go down, like, this back road, and it's, like, police officers just there. And they just, like, pull out guns. I'm terrified. Officers instructed the three suspects to sit on the curbside. However, according to the police report, rather than join the two others, Ricky laid face down on the ground with his hands extended. I was like, I was scared because I didn't want that to happen to me. Black man with dreads, like, and then that's when they told me to get up. So I didn't really want to get up, and it was like right there. So like they kind of like picked me up a little bit, and they told me to like, they said it in a smart way that I didn't understand. What happened that night occurs most nights in major U.S. cities plagued by gun violence. Law enforcement working to keep streets safe, victims senselessly killed, and young people, many men of color, drawn into criminal behavior. My name is Ed Madison, and this is Public Plea, an exploration into a complex and lingering public problem. Incarcerated juveniles nationwide can serve tough sentences for crimes committed while in states of delusion and despair. Statistically, these youth are disproportionately young people of color. Our question in this five-part series is why, and what are alternatives to mass incarceration? That night, Ricky charged back with profanity. I was getting disrespectful because I feel like I was getting disrespected. But I know I shouldn't have did that because I could have really messed me up even more. After getting him up with the others, the officers decided to conduct a search and directed all three to interlace their hands behind their heads. But Ricky says he didn't understand. I had my hands on my head. They said this, they talked about something with my fingers. That's all I remember. And I didn't do what they said because it's like, I didn't understand what you said. I'm like asking like, what, what is that? Accounts of what happened next diverge. According to Ricky, the officers got physical. Next thing I know, like my face just like hit the ground. I slammed my face to the ground. I had like a scratch like right there. It's from my face hitting the ground. And that's when I kind of was like, I don't know where this is going after this. Like, this is getting crazy. Knees in my neck. I'm like, this is getting bad. Like, I'm probably going to die right now. Ricky's claim that he was rough-handled contradicts the police report, and there was no evidence of injuries that would indicate excessive force. But the story is complicated by the fact that there is no video recording of his arrest. Portland is the nation's largest city that doesn't use body cams, a fact we will revisit later in this series. All three suspects were taken into custody. Ricky will tell you he's no saint. His story didn't begin or end that June night on a Portland sidewalk. He exemplifies an all too often familiar narrative. Young black youth caught in the crosshairs of a criminal justice system that rightfully seeks to preserve public safety and hold individuals accountable for committing crimes. But just how just is just. Our venue is Oregon, where until recently juvenile felony offenders were prosecuted under Measure 11 and similar legislation. 
a holdover from the tough-on-crime 1990s. Many of these laws stipulate mandatory minimum sentencing. In 2019, Oregon Senate Bill 1008 provided youth justice reforms allowing judicial discretion when it comes to juvenile sentencing, but they were not made retroactive. More than 20 voices help us distill this issue. You'll meet incarcerated youth awaiting judicial relief and gubernatorial pardons, defense attorneys, prosecutors, victims' rights advocates, legislators, social service professionals, criminologists, and academics who study juvenile justice and behavior. Before venturing too far into this story, we need to acknowledge the difficulty of tackling a topic riddled with so much controversy and complexity. Families grieve, both those who have lost loved ones to violent crimes and individuals with convicted family members. Both features are cut short. There is also a loss to communities. Rather than dwell on the problem, we aim to explore solutions that may lead to real and lasting change. A central question is, what will it take to break a cycle of crime and mass incarceration that destroys futures and takes so many lives? Media producers, interview subjects, podcast listeners, we all come to the subject of criminal justice with prior beliefs and experiences that can color our perspective. As the makers of this podcast, we endeavor to be transparent about ours. I'm an African-American, a journalism professor, an established media professional, and a product of a stable, affluent upbringing. A team of former and current University of Oregon journalism students and I came together in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy to explore a facet of an inexplicable social dilemma. With no first-hand knowledge, making sense of the criminal justice system was not easy until it hit close to home. Towards the end of our year-long work on this project, one of my family members, who recently turned 18, became entangled in a criminal case. Suddenly, this project took on new meaning. This story isn't about him, but it's about the thousands of other black youth like him who face legal consequences for committing crimes. Before delving further into Ricky's story, we need to roll back the clock and explore his childhood. What led him and so many others to this moment in time? A common narrative is that kids who turn to crime come from uncaring families and lack empathy and compassion. However, Ricky's upbringing doesn't fit the stereotype. Oh yeah, his mom probably was a crackhead, he's a crack baby. Saying stuff like that, that hurt my mom's feelings. And I was so disappointed when I heard stuff like that. And like, it was like everywhere. I was a mama's boy, always been, I'm proud to say it. Shantia Foster is Ricky's mom. He is definitely a mama's boy. He is definitely that. I, and I love it. <laughs> I love it, I wouldn't, take, I wouldn't trade it in for the world. Uh, my mom, she's very important. That's like the most important woman in my life. Like, she's always been there, so caring, supportive of my life. Like, she never like neglected me, left me, or anything like that. And then she always made sure that I was okay. And that was like the one thing that like really made me feel good because growing up, it's like somebody's missing their mom, somebody's missing their dad. Like, I had both. You know, so it was, I feel good, you know, I wanted to have that. And my mom, she made sure that just because they were split up, that I would still be in their lives. You know, she still had me there. 
Newly divorced, Shantia worked to maintain family ties and raise their son. She describes Ricky as being a resilient, inquisitive, and mischievous child. Ricky was a quiet, kind of sneaky, not really sneaky, but just like quiet. He would sneak into snacks. He ate everything. So I would say sneaky when it comes to snacks. Um, that specific pot on top of my refrigerator, I have, I used to keep all the snacks, cupcakes, sodas, and things like that. And then when I'd go back in there to check, they'd all be gone. And since he's been grown or 18, he finally confessed that he's been the one taking the snacks and treats out of the thing. But he's always been a loving kid. He's always been about his family, caring, just a wonderful kid. However, as Ricky entered adolescence, he began to change. At about 14, 15, he started to become more reserved. And that's just because he wasn't really into he was growing up and he was trying to find his way and he really wasn't into the things that I wanted him to be into, such as trips to the zoo or trips, you know, like having fun with mom as him being a kid. But that's about when I noticed, about 14, 15, when he started to do different. Ricky's interest turned to pop culture, fashion, and expensive products his family couldn't easily afford. Young and impressionable, he began to question whether he was really loved. I was loved, but it was like it, it wasn't being shown in a way that I wanted to be shown. It wasn't shown like a movie type of love. And that's how like I feel like kids look at it like, you see these movies, like my mom should be taking me to Disneyland or something like that. Well, mom ain't got that Disneyland money. And that's when I got to a certain age and I realized that. So like my mom, she, she couldn't pay for like the Everybody wanted the Jordans, you know, the retros and stuff like that. Everybody wanted, like, Levi's back then. So I, I tried to, like, ask my mom. She was like, I probably asked at the wrong time, to be honest. No. I'm like, what? Like, I'm like, okay, like, why? Why are you yelling at me and stuff like that? I'm in a position where I can provide things like that. But growing up, we did go through a spell where... I could, but it was not a necessity. It wasn't a priority, so I had to stick to what was more important. And when I wasn't able to do it, I was okay with it because the main things that were needed, like as far as lights, housing, food, I mean, that was there. So I was okay with it. Shantia remarried. She had two more children to raise, and now there were more mouths to feed. I was being selfish at the time. like. I wanted all this stuff, but I couldn't have it because my mom didn't have enough money to make us eat and get us the new stuff. So it was either eat or get the stuff. And it got to a point where I started getting my own stuff and doing whatever I needed to like get it. Whether it was like, you know, stealing or whatever the cost it took. And I know that was like not the right way. Like any caring mother, she focused on the bigger picture of preparing her kids to lead successful lives. However, schooling presented its own set of challenges. School was good when he put his mind into it. He's very smart, but if he didn't, I mean, when he didn't, when he didn't want to do it, he just didn't. And that was kind of scary, but 
he's very, he's always been very smart. Prior to him getting arrested, he was in school and he got all A's and then the school shut down. It was an alternative school and then the school shut down and he was transferred to a different alternative school, which he wasn't really happy about going, but he needed to go. And that's when things kind of, he was kind of getting on right track. And then once that school shut down and he just kind of fell off at that point. Like after that point where I felt like I wasn't loved, it was like kind of crazy because it just drove me to the streets. I was in the streets all the time. I, I got, I was getting kicked out of school. And when I got kicked out of school, it was like, where should I go now? As tensions grew at home, Ricky relied on basketball as a healthy outlet for calming his emotions. So basketball was like my thing. I always played basketball, basketball player. I played like fourth through ninth grade. I was like a pretty good player. And then like, I remember I got into it with my mom and I moved with my dad. And when I moved with my dad, that's when they told me that I didn't have enough credits to play that year. And when they told me I didn't have enough credits to play that year, I'm like, what? Like, what you mean I got enough credits to play? Like, that's, I've been playing for like five years now and all of a sudden I can't play. I feel like that's when he lost his spirit, when he wasn't able to play because of grades. That's when a piece of Ricky left because he loved to play. He loved being on the court. He loved, he was really good. So he loved that attention. But once he wasn't able to play, he just kind of, and then it was consecutive games that he wasn't able to play, but he was supposed to be there and watch just for support. Um, shortly after that, I feel like it's when he just lost the love. Uh, he just didn't want to practice. He, did, he wasn't practicing. We had a hoop outside the house at that time. He wasn't outside playing. He was just always away from the house. Sometimes I would think like he was out playing basketball and he would in fact be clear across town. And th these are things that I'm finding out now as he's grown, he can tell me and not get in trouble. But I don't know a lot about that, but I do know that he had a lot of idle time and he used it just hanging out and doing things that he probably shouldn't have been doing or hanging out with people that he probably shouldn't have been hanging out with. At this point, Ricky was regularly skipping school to hang out with friends and avoid his father's discipline. Parting his troubles away seemed like the path of least resistance. One night, realizing it was unlikely he would meet his dad's imposed curfew, Ricky hit a crossroad. It's gonna be like, I had like three minutes to get to the house. I was like, I'm probably not gonna make it in time. And I was with like some friends and they was like, bro, you come with us. You know, we got like smoke all the weeds you want, you know, drink and just be living like a grown man. I'm like, any kid that hear that, like if he's smoking or drinking or whatever, that sounds good, you know? So I'm like, that, that sounds like the life, parties, girls, all that. So I'm like, yeah, let's go. That's, that was my worst mistake I ever made. That was my only like mistake that I had. And that was like, it was at my 10th grade year. That's why I messed up. Ricky never made it home that night. Rather than face retribution from his father, he stayed out on the streets. I was only on the run for like a week. 
and then I ended up getting caught. And I remember like the police like drove me home. And I remember my dad was like, you drawing a lot of heat on yourself. I didn't really like think about it like that. Yeah, whatever. Like I'm not really listening to you like type stuff. And so I, I remember coming home. I stayed for like a day. Went back to school, everybody like, hey, hey, where you been at? And I'm like, you know, I've just been out there, you know, chilling, doing like grown folks stuff. It was like, what? I was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm not trying to sit in school if I can't like play the sport that I love. Like that's, I've been playing that since a kid. So I was like just hooked in the streets. Unwilling to conform to his dad's house rules, Ricky ran away. And what started as mischief led to committing petty crimes. I, I felt bad for like some of the stuff that I did because it's like it was unnecessary, like stealing from like stores and stuff. Like that's stores that like people worked hard to get, you know, businesses. Like what drove me to some stuff like that. And my my dad, he couldn't take me no more. So after that point, I moved back with my mom. Ricky's behaviors didn't improve, but he became better at hiding what he was up to from his mom. Shantia couldn't make sense of what was happening to her son. It was hard. I, there's been days where when he was out of the house, and it shouldn't have been that I would wake up instantly and turn the news on because I want to make sure that he's okay or make sure there was no shootings. I remember things were happening, and I, it, it was a hard time for me. But there's been plenty of times where I've just, I just stressed, 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 stressed. That June night, when Portland police suspected Ricky and two others were connected with a nearby shooting, he was fearful of being hit with several probation violations. Use of marijuana hadn't yet been decriminalized, and he had recently tampered with a court-ordered ankle bracelet that tracked his whereabouts. Officers found a cell phone and bullets in his pocket, and later an eyewitness placed Ricky at the site of the shooting. But according to his defense attorney, there were several irregularities and inconsistencies regarding his arrest. At question was whether Ricky was properly read his Miranda rights and whether the officers had a right to search him in the first place. The eyewitness waffled on her description of the perpetrator's hairstyle. Police failed to connect the ammunition found on Ricky to the crime. However, further investigation determined that the cell phone in Ricky's possession was stolen, linking him to an unrelated earlier robbery. Ricky maintains that he wasn't involved or at the scene of the shooting. He says it was a case of mistaken identity. So I'm thinking like the system is just going to be right all the time. They're not right. It's a money game. You know, they find somebody, fit the description, whether they know it or not. And the state, yeah, they're bullies. It's like, I'm like, you know I didn't do this. It does not even add up. It's like, well, we have to find somebody. I'm like, what you mean? So you're just going to take an innocent person and give him time for that? This is crazy. And the next thing I know, it was like, I started getting indicted on like all type of other things. I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. Prosecutors now offered Ricky a tough choice. Take a plea deal that would convict him for committing a series of lesser crimes or take his chances in court. They were talking about uh, just stacking up charges, which it, 
it kind of made sense, but it didn't make sense because, like, for the stuff, it didn't make, like, you're throwing maximum out there, which they said uh, 25 years, which didn't phase me at the time because I'm like, they're trying to do a scare tactic. But they got to my mom. My mom was in the courtroom. She started crying, and that's when it hit me. I'm like, dang, like, it's my mom. Like, she crying. She's like, don't, don't, don't play around. Don't, like, you know, don't go to trial. Because if you go to trial, they're going to give you more time than what you want. I was one to more so, like, encourage him. And I hate to say it, but he, they were saying that if he didn't, he could be facing way more time than that. And I just, not just for me, but for him, I just couldn't see him getting 20 plus years as a kid. So it's like, and I know that that's what would, would happen. I know I've been around long enough to know that that's how the, the judicial system, system works. They, I mean, he would have most likely ended up with a whole lot of time. I sat in my cell depressed for like two days. Didn't really even eat or anything. Like sleeping a lot. Like, dang. And they just told me that they had lowered my deal down. Because they said the max was 25 years. And then it was like at 140 months of what they were trying to get me in a deal. And I was like, no, I'm not taking that at all. And they was like, well, we can try to see if we lower it. So like in the next couple of days come, I'll go back to court and they said 120 months. I'm like, no, I don't want to take that either. And my mom was like, just looked at me. It's like, she gave me that look. And you know, like when your mom give you that look, like you need to listen. I'm like, all right, so I'll take it. I took it because I'm smart. I know what I'm capable of. I know that anything, I can come back to that court and try to like fight for myself. Two of his charges, first degree robbery and second degree assault fell under measure 11. Ricky was sentenced to 10 years. Just shy of turning 18, he was spared time in adult prison, at least until he turns 25. When Oregon law stipulates he be transferred from the Oregon Youth Authority to adult corrections, unless he prevails in some future court proceeding. In 2019, questioning the fairness of mandatory minimums, Oregon legislators repeal use of harsh long-term sentencing laws for juveniles, returning discretion to judges. But the revisions were not made retroactive, leaving many young people like Ricky with few options, other than to petition the governor for a pardon or file for post-conviction relief. Ricky chose the latter option, and as we'll discover, it is an unpredictable pathway fraught with peril. In the next edition of Public Plea, fed up with several decades of what they consider weak judicial sentencing, victims' families push politicians to get tougher on crime. I don't go along with people that say that law and order is a code word for racism. I believe that what we have to have is the restoration of law and order for all Americans. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. There's nothing wrong with law and order. There's law and order, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. And in 1990, Oregon voters support Measure 11. 
it wasn't even three strikes and you're out. It was one strike and you're out. I wrote Measure 11 with an intention of establishing a floor, a mandatory minimum sentence for the most violent crimes. We put it on the ballot and the voters agreed with it. And three years into his 10-year sentence, Ricky mounts a legal challenge to win his freedom, represented by attorney Ginger Mooney. So in order to plead guilty, you have to have all of the information before you can make that decision. So we're alleging in Mr. Gator's petition that there are certain volumes of information that he didn't have prior to pleading guilty. Join us for the next episode of Public Plea. Thanks for listening to Public Plea. This program was independently produced by alumni and current students at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication in partnership with Oregon Public Broadcasting, The Oregonian, and Willamette Week. The views and opinions expressed by our interview subjects are their own and in no way reflect those of the University of Oregon, our partners, or their employees. For more information about this project, go to publicplea.net. I'm Ed Madison.